I was recently interviewing a young mother in, in Petare who was telling me her daughters ask her every single day, mommy, 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 when is the food bag coming? Mommy, will it have milk? Mommy, when is it coming? And she has to try to tell them, listen, girls, you don't have to worry about that. Go play. Mommy will think about it and take care of it. Don't worry. It's coming. You're too little to worry about this. But how can you not worry when you're hungry? Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Global. We are jumping right in this month with the introduction of our new host. If you listen to our last episodes, Sam Johannes betrayed the podcast by going off to work in the field of nuclear security. What a job. Uh, but that means I have the honor to introduce Mr. Ryan Maddox, who does not cover North Korea or any other nuclear state, right? No. What Ukraine you, and Russia. Well, oops. <laughs> we just can't get rid of you Eurasia guys. <laughs> that is true. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Ryan. Thanks, JT. It's an honor to be the new host of Global. And let me just say uh, that no one could ever replace Sam Johannes. I am merely succeeding him. Well, Baltimore's own Ryan Maddox is a proud member of IRI's Eurasia team, as I've said. He's also a graduate of Seton Hall. So two Jersey boys in the house. Jersey boys. I love it. Ryan, you also have a dual diploma in international diplomacy and modern languages. That's right. Russian and Spanish. So how ironic. It is pretty ironic. You, you work know. for the Eurasia division and we're covering a country My where first podcast Spanish is, is kind of is. Okay. So they're throwing me right in. They're right throwing the me right in the deep end. So why don't you tell our new listeners or any of them out there. I, we get new ones every month. Uh, what what we're all about. So Global is a monthly podcast featuring the past, present, and future of one country per episode. And today we're talking about a country that is all over the news these days and going through a pivotal point in their history. Venezuela was once the richest country in Latin America with the largest known oil reserves in the world, and its democratic governance was once praised worldwide. But today the country has the highest inflation rate in the world. Over the last four years, its GDP has fallen 35%, which is a sharper drop than the U.S. during the Great Depression. And the country's murder rate has surpassed that of the most dangerous cities in the world. There are plenty of opinions and thoughts on who to blame. Um, we'll hear about some of those opinions during this episode, but we'll also be providing a lot of context about how we got here with Venezuela and where the country may be going. We don't mean to offend anyone, but if we do uh, on anything in this podcast, join the conversation. We love to talk about it. Tweet at us, shoot us an email. Don't shoot us, just just an email, podcast at iri.org. Uh, just to correct us, we're happy to get your feedback. And leave your comments in the comment section of the, the podcast. With that, let's dive into the episode. Ryan, you're the new guy. Tell us the fast facts. The Republica Bolivariana de Venezuela, or just Venezuela as we know it. Wait, wait, is this your dual, this is my, yeah. your dual degree at work? My, my professors would be very proud of the way I, uh, I, wow. I pronounce it. Here you go, folks. Yeah. Seton Hall for languages. Go ahead. Republica. Yeah. Yes. Emphasis on the right syllable, as they say. Or Venezuela <laughs> as we know it. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do this. <laughs> go ahead. Venezuela sits on the northern coast of South America and is bordered by Colombia to the west, Guyana to the east, the Caribbean Sea to the north, and Brazil to the south. Its population is approximately 32 million people. Its official language is Spanish, though the Constitution actually recognizes more than 30 indigenous languages. Can you give me one? I can. Do you have Google on you? <laughs> and the vast majority of its citizens are Christians, and about 71% of them uh, identify as Roman Catholics. Its government type is technically a federal presidential constitutional republic, but our guests will go into more detail about uh, the most recent shakeups that Venezuela's faced, uh, particularly the National Assembly and the role that it plays. Or doesn't play. 
or doesn't play. Right. That's right. Yeah. The most important fast fact we uh, have for you today is that Venezuela has the largest proven oil reserves in the world at about 300 billion barrels. There's 11 zeros in that number, JT. <laughs> I can't count that high. Yeah, me neither. My personal favorite fast fact of Venezuela is that it's home to the world's highest continuous waterfall, Salto Angel or Angel Falls. Uh, what, what happens? You jump off and you... You jump off, you become an angel because it's, it's, an it's so high. <laughs> would you Would you be an angel, you think, if you jumped off? Well, I think I'd led a pretty good life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. I like that. <laughs> I love it. And if you listen to our last episode, JT, at the very end of it, we have our hint fact of the next country that yeah, we'll be using. We so Venezuela's was that on Christmas Day, uh, families will rollerblade to church on what? Yep. The mayor closes down the streets and because of the, uh, because of all the car traffic. So families hop on their, their rollerblades. Are you, are you a rollerblader? I see. Ryan? Do I look like a rollerblader? <laughs> I don't think so. Could you rollerblade? You go to skate land, right? Could you imagine me on rollerblades? Yeah. You're probably zooming. <laughs> zooming. Zooming into the emergency room. <laughs> that's about, that's where I'll be zooming to. Okay. I'm very excited for this episode because we're talking to world-renowned economist, Dr. Ricardo Hausman. Dr. Hausman was the Minister of Planning in Venezuela in the early 90s, and today is the Director of the Center for International Development at the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard University. Thank you very much for this invitation. It's great to be here. Next, we've also got Alexandra Ulmer, who's a correspondent for Reuters, actually based in Caracas, Ryan. She'll be giving us an on-ground look of what is actually happening in the country today. Thanks so much for for this, guys. I really look forward to the podcast and really appreciate you um, paying attention to, to Venezuela. And finally, we've got Miriam Kornblith, who is a senior director for LAC, or Latin America and the Caribbean, at the National Endowment for Democracy. She's truly a Venezuelan expert, previously taught politics at Central University of Venezuela, and from 98 to 99, served as a board member and vice president of the Venezuelan National Electoral Council. Let's get started. Let's do it. So if you listened to episode two of our podcast on Colombia, we learned all about the history of Gran Colombia, which included the ter territory that became Venezuela. That was actually my first podcast episode, Ryan. Wow. Yeah, it was. And uh, it was Andres Pastrana, president, former president of Colombia. Who he taught interviewed. us that? Well, he did. Wow. So go back and listen to that if you want all of the history. But for this episode, let's focus mainly on modern history. Dr. Hausman, where do we even begin to understand the current crisis today? Well, I mean, there are different places where you can begin. You know, Venezuela realized that they had significant amounts of oil in 1917. That's 100 years ago this year. Venezuela became the largest oil exporter in 1929, the world's largest oil exporter, and stayed there for, if you want, 36 years until 1965. So in those years, Venezuela was a very prosperous, growing, promising place. It was a very open place. It had a lot of European immigration. It had a lot of Latin American immigration. It had a lot of presence of uh, multinational corporations. Uh, it was a country that Nelson Rockefeller fell in love with. It, it went from being so like one of the poorest countries in Latin America to the richest country in Latin America. Until 1958, that, that transformation happened essentially under military rule dictatorships. And then in 1958, the dictatorship was overthrown and a democratic regime uh, was put in place. And this democratic regime was sort of like the envy of everybody. It was the envy of everybody because uh, uh, there were competitive elections, there were a significant number of parties. Uh, but uh, as opposed to other places, there was uh, parties were never in power for too long. So the first 10 years, the same party ruled, but the next election, 
they lost, and then the next election, the incumbent party lost again, and then the next election, the incumbent party lost again, and so on. So, so there was changeover of power, and, and that regime decided that in order to make democracy stable, you had to have an agreement on some basic rules beyond who's in government. And that regime worked quite well for uh, at least the first 20 years of that, say, 40-year period between uh, 1958, when democracy arrived, and 1998, when Chavez won the election. So what happens next? That democracy lasted a good 40-year period. And that 40-year period had a lot of progress in many dimensions, but was punctured by this collapse in oil revenues in the 80s and 90s. Just to give you a sense of the magnitudes, when I was born, Venezuela was a country of 7 million people. And it was exporting 3 million barrels of oil a day. Today, Venezuela is a country of 31 million people, and it, it is exporting half of that. So it's this decline of a society that used to be prosperous, used to be rich, used to be, uh, be able to afford many things, uh, but suddenly was no longer able to do so. And the story that, uh, that Chavez told was essentially that that was because of some corrupt politicians. Now, I don't want to say that there was no corruption. I can say for sure that whatever corruption there was, was child's play compared to what's happening right now. But the story at the time was, which was, you know, plausible story is everything that you see, all these difficulties are really uh, because of an elite that has be that is too stingy because they want all the money for themselves, when the reality was that the money was just not there. What administration were you a part of? So I was working for the government of Carlos Andres Perez, and then Rafael Caldera got elected um, under a sort of like anti-reformist platform. In, in He took power in 94, but by 96, he had to come into the IMF, do another reform program and so on. And, uh, and things were supposedly looking better, but by early 1998, the price of oil collapsed. Uh, and in August 98, Russia defaulted, and that generated panic in financial markets. That hit Venezuela with two important shocks, oil and lack of access to international finance at a time when you needed it most. So 98 was a fairly bad year, and that's the year that Chavez got elected. So he, was a, he got elected at a time of a kind of a perfect storm. So President Hugo Chavez, um, he started by changing the constitution and created a constituent assembly that essentially closed down the old parliament, closed down the old uh, judicial system, and recreated it from scratch, and increased a lot the powers of the presidency. Initially, and you know, Chavez in his first election said that he was not a socialist and so on, but now essentially they, they, they are outright socialist and the aspiration to a more communal or communist um, uh, society in which they want to They've nationalized everything. They've, they want to go into more a Soviet-like communal system. Uh, um, and uh, and so, so the Bolivarian Revolution, in some sense, has discovered what it was. They called it 21st century socialism, but it looks remarkably like 
early 20th century communism. And why did it gain so much traction in those times? Is there something cultural or, or is it historical? You know, what, what made the Venezuelan people really attracted to this? Well, I think it's a mix of two things. It's a, sort of like a, a narrative of victimhood that everything that has happened to us has been the consequence of bad people doing bad things to us. Then the second one is just a, a lot of public spending from high oil income. The popularity of Chavez was very low by 2003. And had there been elections in that year, he probably would have lost. But between 2004 and 2014, the price of oil had the biggest boom in its history. It gave, again, the sense that uh, you know God was Venezuelan, that... Uh, that the good times were here back again forever. And uh, they started to uh, paper things over by importing a lot of stuff. And they could afford it because the price of oil was very high. And because the price of oil was very high, they could also borrow a lot. Instead of putting some money aside because you know they won the lottery, uh, they started to borrow against the future a lot of money. And um, by 2012, they were they were bar, they were spending as if the price of oil was at 200 when it was actually only at 100, and they borrowed so much that at one point in time, capital markets said we don't lend to you anymore, and that happened about 2013. Unfortunately, this was probably the most mismanaged oil boom in Venezuela's history, and as a consequence, it left us incredibly fragile. And then in 2014, the price of oil collapsed. So they were left with a society that cannot solve its own problems because they have been um, put in chains and in a government that can no longer substitute for that society by importing. And that generated this incredible collapse in income standards that this hemisphere has never seen, that very few countries in the world have ever seen, and almost no country in the world has seen in the con- outside of war. For 124 consecutive days, protests have rocked the streets of Caracas, Venezuela, growing increasingly violent. National forces armed with tear gas, rubber bullets, batons, and guns clamping down. The death toll now, 120, thousands injured, thousands more arrested. They've been protesting. All right, now, Alexandra, could you kind of walk us through, like, a bullet point timeline of the current crisis. How did we get here? There's been a steady buildup of economic decay in Venezuela, companies leaving, nationalizations, and especially in the 2003 implementation of currency controls, which means the government fixes the rate of from to change bolivares into dollars, but that has created a black market because the government is not able to satiate demand for dollars. And that is at the heart of a lot of the food shortages and um, inflation that we see today. And for our listeners' information, could you tell us a little bit about currency control that you just mentioned? What does is, what is currency control mean? So in, in 2003, the late President Chavez implemented currency controls to stop capital flight. Uh, so while oil prices were at 100, um, you know, it was much easier for the economy to get by despite the currency controls. But now the government no longer has enough money to properly feed and satiate demand for dollars here. And so we've seen the black market shoot up. So there are two official rates that are dictated by the government. On one rate, in exchange for 10 bolivares, you get $1. But on the black market rate, which is what most people have access to because it's very hard to get access to a preferential official rate, you need about 21,000 bolivares to get $1. So that's a massive 
of distortion. That means certain things on the black market can cost $3, but at the official rate, you know, something completely different. Um, critics say that means the government, the, the economy is incredibly inefficient. It gives rise to corruption because if you can, you know, buy a dollar for 10 bolivares and then resell it, you can make a lot of money or vice versa. And that's at the heart of a lot of the dysfunction in the Venezuelan economy. Okay, Miriam. Can you tell our listeners the role the military plays in the crisis? What is the relationship with the military and the executive branch? It's a very close relationship. I mean, from the arrival of Chavez to power, he really didn't trust any anyone else. He trusted the military as his support. On the other hand, he also feared the military because he was briefly displaced for 48 hours through a military coup. So he was very aware of the power of the military and on, on, of the need for him to have a very close relationship with the military. And has that transferred with Maduro? Yes. In the case of Maduro, not coming from the military, he had to uh, develop additional efforts to bring the military uh, closer to him. And, and he has, in an even more significant way, has incorporated the military into the government, they, uh, they uh, occupy critical roles. And they received the, uh, the exchange rate, uh, the currency. Well, um, they have involved in all sorts of dealings. I mean, they're involved in narco-trafficking. They're involved in all the, the food-related uh, trade. Dr. Hausman, how did Nicolas Maduro come to power? Well, Nicolas Maduro came to power because uh, someday, I think it was December 8th, uh, uh, 2012, uh, Chavez announced that he was going to go to Cuba for some additional treatment for cancer, and he never showed up in public again. And uh, it was announced that he died sometime in early March uh, of 2013. He said, if I die, uh, I would like Maduro to succeed me. Maduro had been his minister of foreign affairs, had been president of the National Assembly. He, he started as a, as a bus driver. But um, it was a bit of an odd choice. Uh, he was not a particularly strong political figure, but apparently it was uh, the choice of um, of the Cubans. The Cuban government had uh, the Cuban uh, Maduro had trained in Cuba as a political organizer in the 1980s, and uh, and so so he was sort of like uh, the person closest to. Uh, to Cuba, and Chavez had spent a long time during 2012 uh, in Cuba because he was being treated for cancer in Cuba. A month after they announced that Chavez had died, they called a snap election, and Maduro won by a whisker, which uh, in, in a very unfair electoral campaign where they restricted the opposition from even buying ads on TV. And, and then the next thing that happened is that uh, in, on December 5th, uh, 2015, there were parliamentary elections and the opposition won a two-thirds majority. Wow, that's a big deal in Venezuela, right? It's a big deal because with a two-thirds majority, you can do constitutional reforms, you can do a lot of stuff with two-thirds of the National Assembly. And as a consequence, what happened is that the National Assembly was never allowed to do anything whatsoever. And uh, Maduro just decided to uh, rule by decree, uh, by emergency decree, in an unconstitutional way, because uh, according to the Constitution, you can rule by decree if the uh, National Assembly allows you to, so votes for the, those extraordinary powers, which he never got, but he ruled by um, by decree anyway. Okay, so let's officially move to the current crisis. Alexandra, 
Can you walk us through how Venezuela got to the point it is at today? So there's been a steady and quite acute worsening of the economic crisis over the last three years, especially that has really pummeled people. That's what's really underpinning all the anger against Maduro, the fact that you walk into a store and you can't find rice or it costs about half of your monthly wage. Is this because of oil? So partly. Part of the economic crisis has to do with oil prices crashing. Venezuela depends on oil for about 90% of its foreign income and has very little else going for it in the economy. But the price of oil has only left bare all the distortions and problems in the Venezuelan economy uh, because they can no longer feed these inefficient and corrupt currency control systems because they cannot no longer afford subsidized goods, etc. So we've seen the economic worsening. Last year, the opposition was pushing for a recall referendum against Maduro, who's become increasingly unpopular because of the economic crisis. Authorities nixed that recall referendum attempt, saying the signature drive was fraudulent, which the opposition said was just an excuse to keep Maduro in power. But polls showed there was there was an an overwhelming majority of people were in favor of a recall referendum against Maduro. Okay, so just to take us back, now we've uh, we have a referendum uh, derailed. Then what happens? Okay, so first months of, of this year were very quiet. Uh, you know, the economy was worsening, things were bad, but on the political front, it was incredible how calm it was. And in fact, a lot of the conversation in this country, people would say, when is this going to explode? How can people be passive and still keep going? Uh, what, you know, Venezuela is evidently unstable. Why is this not exploding? And then, bam. In late March, the Supreme Court, which is very favorable to President Nicolas Maduro, Issued a, issued a very controversial decision saying it was taken o- taking over the powers of the opposition-led Congress. That sparked outrage, even though the Congress had already basically had its powers stripped away because the Supreme Court would strike down laws or Maduro would ignore its decisions, etc. The fact that the Supreme Court was so openly and officially saying, we are taking over your powers, triggered worldwide condemnation and got the opposition united in a strategy against Maduro. So immediately it started calling for protests and we saw massive protests in capital Caracas and across the country. It also caused very rare public fracture within the government, with state prosecutor Luis Ortega coming out and saying there has been a rupture of the constitutional order in Venezuela, which ultimately led to her destitution. And she's now fled Venezuela and is touring Latin American countries denouncing Maduro. Um, And after that, that Supreme Court decision, it was rolled back eventually after three days. It was quickly rolled back. But essentially, it it, it triggered social outrage and people took to the streets for four months. Uh, The government was completely on its back foot. Latin American countries, which had kept pretty quiet about the Venezuela issue, uh, came out strongly condemning Maduro. Now we are at a protest stage. There's condemnation. What happens next? Protests escalate. There are more and more deaths. Um, Daily life grants to halt. Schools are canceled. People barely go to work or work half days or have to work from home because, you know, they're they're street barricades and they can't get out. And we really feel like tensions are rising. And then Maduro announces he's going to create a constituent assembly. Uh, And everyone kind of paused and it was unclear what he really meant. And then as the details emerged, we realized it was a all-powerful super body that would usurp the powers of Congress and give him freedom to enact whatever laws he wants. So what happens next? So there's a buildup of protests um, in the run-up to the 
election for the Constituent Assembly. The opposition, uh, very interestingly, holds its own unofficial referendum asking Venezuelans whether they agree with the plan for a Constituent Assembly or not and what they think of Maduro. This happens two weeks before the Constituent Assembly vote. And then uh, 7 million people or so, a little over 7 million people voted uh, against Maduro and against the Constituent Assembly, in which was very embarrassing for the government because it's not just the opposition saying we're against us. It's 7 million people in a country of 30 million saying we disagree with this plan. Dr. Hausman, can you tell us more about the National Constituent Assembly? The only people who can call a a constitutional assembly is the people. That is, it means that you need to call a referendum to ask people, do you want to change the constitution or not? And then after they decide to change the constitution, then you would elect a constituent assembly. So what Maduro did is he just skipped that stage. I want to reiterate that because it's important for context. The July 10 elections for the National Constituent Assembly were, according to the Constitution, supposed to be a referendum on whether or not to create the body. Instead, Maduro just held elections to elect its members, skipping that critical importance. That's kind of important. Yes. He never asked people if they wanted to change the Constitution and just created a crazy scheme where there was one representative per municipality. Now, Venezuela has municipalities with 2 million people and has municipalities with 2,000 people. So one per municipality is would have slanted things their way. But that added up to 300-some people. And then they decided to put some 250-odd other people who were representative, like, of social classes or something, where we never knew why, so like, the representative of the students or the handicapped or the, um, the peasants, or, you know, st- stuff, categories like that. Opinion polls that ask people, did you vote in that election or not, suggest that something like 3 million people voted in that election. The government said that 8 million people had voted in that election. And uh, and the, the company that ran the, the computer systems, the electronic voting machines, said that there had been fraud in that election. So... So, in essence, they they created in the most unconstitutional and illegal way a body with full powers. They are empowered to dissolve any other power. They are, they are empowered to change the president, change the National Assembly, change whatever they want. There are no constraints on their power. And because of that, 50 countries in the world have said that they do not recognize the National Assembly. So, I think this was you know, a super red line that the government of Maduro crossed. Alexandria, you spoke a little bit about the opposition in Congress uh, and its and its and how it swept the power. Could you talk a little bit about the current opposition leadership in the country? So Venezuela is just emerging from four months of massive anti-government protests, which unified the opposition in the street strategy to try to pressure Maduro. But in the end, he ended up consolidating power essentially sidelining the opposition-led Congress and implementing this controversial new legislative superbody. So a lot of people in Venezuela who had taken to the streets day in and day out, bringing daily life to a a halt, essentially, uh, are very dispirited about what's happening. They're even more dispirited because the opposition has agreed to go to gubernatorial elections next month. So a lot of ordinary Venezuelans are saying, wait a minute, 125 people died, countless were injured, we suffered tear gas and, and other sorts of things from security forces only to have the opposition leadership saying, okay, now we're going to elections in a system that we think is fraudulent. Uh, so there's just a lot of disillusionment at the moment. The opposition coalition is also notoriously fragmented. 
it's always been prone to infighting and, and disputes over strategy, over how to take on Maduro. And that's what's always helped uh, Venezuela's socialist government stay in power. I wanted to ask you really quickly um, if you could tell me a little bit about the political prisoners and how many of them are detained and sort of how that situation is playing out. The opposition says there's over 100 detained political activists who say they've been arrested on on completely bogus charges and are in cramped, difficult prisons. Uh, in addition, we had thousands of arrests during the protests, often young people who were just whisked away. Uh, Venezuela's jails are terribly overcrowded. Uh, gangs usually control the prisons and they often organize kidnappings uh, from the jail itself. So they're very nasty places. Ms. Cornblith, how deep does this corruption go? Very the deep. Country? Very so it's, deep. it's I mean, not it's, just the, this top circles. It goes. No, it's unfortunately, it's uh, the model uh, that was develop in the country had corruption as a main component. It was not just like a side effect. Uh, increasingly, corruption became one of the main mechanisms to grant uh, support for the regime. So all of those who were close to the government were somehow captured through corruption, allowed to uh, develop corrupt practices and were entangled in the corrupt system. On the other hand, as controls grew and were multiplied, uh, as we know from other, other experiences wor worldwide, the more regulations you have, the more opportunities for corruption. Wow. So what other aspects of, of life for a typical Venezuelan are being affected by this? So it depends on class. Venezuela's poor are the ones who are suffering the most. They're the ones who are living on a handful of dollars a month, uh, literally at the black market rate, and are getting up in the middle of, in middle of the night to start queuing up in front of supermarkets uh, in the hope that something will be delivered at a price they can afford. Remember, Venezuela is one of the most dangerous countries in the world, so getting up at the crack of dawn to stand in line as a sitting duck is, is not easy either. The middle class is also feeling the pinch because there are few professional opportunities in Venezuela. And that's why we've seen a huge wave of emigration to Latin America, United States. You know, the wealthy, if, if they earn in dollars, can in some ways live quite well here, given the exchange rate differences that make a lot of things dirt cheap here. But of course, they're also very exposed to kidnapping and other crimes. What are some of the, the tangential problems that come with those that hyperinflation? So, hyperinflation, uh, in addition to, to eroding people's income and, and causing a great deal of anxiety, just makes it logistically very difficult to pay for things. I mean, you need huge wads of cash to pay for basic things. The problem is there's also a cash shortage because money printing and the denomination of the bills doesn't keep up with prices. So ATMs uh, have long queues in front of them. Oftentimes they don't have any money. Cash is a constant nightmare. Alexandra, you talked uh, very, very briefly about the slums, and uh, I'm sure in your work you have gone into some of these areas. What have you seen? What have you found? And um, you know, what's going on there? Because, I mean, really, some of these areas were areas that were initially behind the revolution, right, in many ways. Absolutely. One of the most interesting things that I've seen in my last three years here is seeing the slums around Caracas turn on Chavez. These were some of his more fervent supporters who voted for him every single time and who are now the ones who are suffering the worst from the crisis. So Caracas is, is surrounded by hillside slums huge sprawling uh, barrios, as they're called in Venezuela. And talking to families there is, is really heartbreaking. Um, 
a lot of parents tell you they just simply cannot afford to buy enough food for to give their kids to three square meals a day. And what they can afford are often empty starches like potatoes or yuca, uh, plantains. Parents tell are always telling you that they're telling telling me that they're skipping meals so that their children eat. The government has implemented a new system that they say helps alleviate food shortages. They're uh, essentially government supporters distribute food bags to families in the slums. The, the food bags are subsidized, but you have to pay for them. So a lot of families and kids spend weeks waiting for their food bags to arrive. I was recently interviewing a young mother in, in Petare who was telling me her daughter's ask her every single day, mommy, 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 when is the food bag coming? Mommy, will it have milk? Mommy, when is it coming? And she has to try to tell them, listen, girls, you don't have to worry about that. Go play. Mommy will think about it and take care of it. Don't worry. It's coming. You're too little to worry about this. Her two little daughters have these cute little pink play phones, but instead of playing like normal little girls, they call each other pretending that they're supermarket and, and dreaming that food's arrived and say, oh, quick, quick, hurry up. I found rice. I'll save you a place in line. Hurry up, hurry up. And the other girl answers saying, no, I have flour. You come, you come. And the mother tells him, stop playing that. Please go play with your dolls. Do something else. But the crisis is everywhere. And this is what the little girls see their mother doing every day because all of Venezuelan society now revolves a lot around finding food and trying to survive. And it's probably more prevalent to see, you know, the business failures and, and stuff like that in Caracas. How does the countryside get affected with this? What are what are they most prone to? Well, the situation is bad in Caracas, but it's often far worse in the countryside because it's much harder to get food there. It's also much harder to get cash delivered to the ATMs, to get medicines in the hospitals and all sorts of other things. The provinces are highly neglected. Uh, one thing that has helped people in the provinces is proximity to Colombia in recent years because they're able to cross a very easy border and buy food or medicine. Venezuelan women cross to give birth in the hospitals um, and there's a thriving trade there. Miriam, with this crisis, what is Venezuela's relationship with its neighbors like? During the oil boom and Chavez's years, I mean, the whole hemisphere also somehow benefited from uh, significant economic and trade, uh, trade relations with most of the countries in the region. Venezuela, unfortunately, uh, sacrificed its own internal production in order to generate this increased trade with the most of the countries of the region. And this was basically a political decision. Uh, Venezuela was able to produce a, a significant portion of goods and services in the country. However, Chavez chose to weaken the traditional uh, elites, economic elites and political elites and military elites and substitute them uh, with emerging elites clearly uh, tied to the government and also substitute economic activity through direct relationship between uh, the Venezuelan government and all the neighboring governments and in order to create these new flows of goods and services uh, as a way to displace existing elites. So, Dr. Hausman, has Maduro been able to maintain diplomatic support? No, he's had a disastrous turn of events in, in terms of uh, diplomatic support. Chavez uh, was the darling of the region for a long time. There were many left-wing governments in Latin America that were sort of like sympathetic. There's been a political change in all of these countries. So uh, now the Brazil, Argentina, uh, Chile, and Peru are not as supportive. Uh, but even countries that are left-wing, like even Chile and Uruguay, uh, that for a very long time remained loyal to Chavez and so on. 
uh, have now asked, have, you know, kicked out Venezuela from Mercosur. So essentially, uh, Maduro has become a pariah. He enjoys the support of Iran, enjoys the support of Belarus. Uh, he, you know, even the Russians and the Chinese are a bit sick and tired of him. Okay, Ms. Kornblith, again, sticking to the theme, I think our listeners would love to hear more about Venezuela's goals uh, in their own foreign policy. Where do they see themselves in the world? Yeah, well, one very interesting feature of the Chavista project was that they came to power uh, hoping to rearrange the international order. I mean, they are the product of the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And as many others, many leftists or communists in the world, they felt deeply threatened by the fact that the the world seemed to be turning into a a unipolar world with the, the leadership of the Western countries and specifically the U.S. So one of their goals was to turn what at the moment was perceived as a unipolar world into a multipolar world and to uh, redefine consensus, I mean regional or hemispheric consensus and also international consensus in regards to the the worth, the value of uh, representative democracy, of uh, multilateral bodies that could oversee somehow uh, democracy. So one of the first things, uh, events where this was uh, clearly uh, reflected was uh, when the signing of the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Venezuela opposed until the very end uh, this charter because, among other things, it said representative democracy is the right of the people in Latin America. They wanted, uh, they insisted, and they even somehow they wanted to insert participatory democracy. And besides the rhetoric, it was was a telling, say, initiative in terms of trying to question the consensus in the in the hemisphere in regards to to uh, representative democracy. When so, was that charter? On the same day of uh, 9/11. Side note, that's why Colin Powell was not in the U.S. on 9-11. He was actually there for the signing. What was the full name of it? The Inter-American Democratic Charter, which is the charter that uh, expresses the commitment to democracy in the Latin American hemisphere. And Venezuela signed it, and the first time that charter was used was in the occasion of the coup against Chavez. So that's, you know, the, the paradox of history that they opposed initially that charter, and however it was used to protect the government against the coup. What do you think other countries can learn from that, from Venezuela's experience? Different players in different countries can learn different things, of course. I think a bad regime, a bad, uh, you know, a bad government can cause unimaginable damage to a society. I mean, a country such as Venezuela, that is basically a resource-rich country that went through an amazing... uh, uh, oil boom ended up in misery. So bad decisions, ideologically, uh, those things have to be have to be taken seriously, seriously by the domestic uh, players and the population, and seriously by the international community and the neighborhood. Because nowadays, I mean, at some point, many countries, many governments in the region just. I mean, did not pay attention to what was going on in Venezuela, just benefit, profited by, uh, you know, exchanges, trade, and also from corruption. But nowadays, those same same countries are also suffering from the consequences of having 
uh, allowed this to uh, develop uh, to the levels it's, it, it has attained nowadays. Okay, Alexandra, when are the next elections? Next year, the very end of, of 2018, we're supposed to have presidential elections. Uh, many opposition supporters are skeptical that these will be free and fair. Leopoldo Lopez, one of the main opposition leaders, is under house arrest and cannot participate. Do you think, I guess personally, will we even reach that outcome? Will we reach... It's incredibly difficult to predict Venezuela. It's evident that the situation economically and politically is not sustainable, but that doesn't mean it's going to collapse. There are several key things to watch going forward. Definitely the economy, both in terms on, of how hyperinflation and shortages affect people and could lead to, to a new wave of protests, and in terms of how sanctions and other problems could cripple the government, and especially the operations at state oil company PDVSA. In addition, the military is always one to watch in Venezuela. Uh, we saw an uprising this year, small and contained, but an uprising nonetheless. And while the top brass in the military is publicly completely behind Maduro, there is unhappiness within the ranks, especially at the bottom where soldiers are poorly paid, uh, have to stand guards in front of supermarkets to avoid riots or take on protesters in the street. So how does this crisis end going forward? I mean, what do you think? Well, that's very difficult to know. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be very insincere if I said I, I knew how this would end. I mean, it's uh, identifying an exit strategy for uh, those who are currently in power is, is, is one of the tasks of both the international community, for them themselves, you know, and for the democratic forces in Venezuela. On the other hand, I mean, there are significant crimes that have been committed in terms of human rights violations, in terms of massive corruption, I mean, kleptocratic uh, practices that have left the country in total despair right. in the aftermath of a huge oil boom that, I mean, uh, it also deserves consideration. So there's been some heavy discussion in this episode. Uh, we'd like to end on a lighter note, which we usually do in every episode. If there was a time capsule that was being shot off into space, what would be included in it to represent Venezuela? Ooh. <laughs> Venezuela is in a terrible crisis, but I think people here characterize themselves by being very happy Caribbean people who love to joke and laugh and dance and sing. Uh, so I wouldn't put only dire things in there. Uh, I would put an arepa, which is these corn patties that are a staple here for breakfast and other meals, and Venezuelans absolutely Me adore. Arepas. Ay, qué bueno! <laughs> yeah, they're, they're yummy, especially with cheese and avocado. Um, sorry, I digress. <laughs> So, Ryan, what a great panel of guests today. It's a star lineup, and I feel like this is a very complex issue, and no one sums it up better than Ricardo Hausmann. You can follow him on Twitter, Ricardo underscore Hausmann. That's one S. One N. One N. At the end of that. Exactly. You know his name has two Ns. Absolutely. And then also we have Alexandra Ulmer. She gave us the underground perspective. She's living there in Caracas. She's been there throughout this crisis. And you can follow her on Twitter at Alexandra Ulmer. That's U-L-M-E-R. No space. And finally, we had Miriam Kornblith, who is such a strong advocate for democracy in Venezuela, uh, working over at National Endowment for Democracy. And we're so fortunate to have her on the, on the episode. Indeed, indeed, Ryan. JT, if our listeners only remember three things from this episode, what are those 
three things. What are the takeaways? First, Venezuela's democratic institutions have been gutted throughout the, the Chavez and Maduro regimes. We are officially in a dictatorship. I would say the second one is that corruption is literally killing people. Uh, there's food queues in the street uh, and political graft is keeping food out of the bellies of Venezuelans. I would say the third one is this authoritarian regime is holding back the future potential and promise of this country from its resources to its youth, to its will uh, to be a leader in the region. So that's it for today's episode, JT. Yeah. So listeners, what do you want to hear next? What countries are you interested in? Write us an email, podcast at IRI.org. We actually do read every email or you could tweet at us at IRI Global. You could leave us a review on iTunes. We like reviews as we long do. as they're good ones. We do. Especially for Ryan, since this is his first episode. Lots of five stars. Five stars for Ryan. Especially if you want Ryan. I need a job. He does. I need to keep this job. So no five stars, no return. If you made it this far, you've been rewarded. At the end of each podcast, we like to or, leave. Or you just forgot to turn it off. Or you forgot off. to turn it off and you're, you're asleep on the metro. <laughs> yeah. Wake up. You're going to miss your stop. <laughs> um, if you made it this far into the podcast, we like to leave a special little hint at the next podcast. Now, this hint, JT, is super easy to Google and cheat at. You can. I want you to challenge which, yourself. Which I'm sure you will do at the end of this episode. I, uh, you know me. So <laughs> the fact is this. Yes. This is the fourth largest country in the world. By landmass or by population? Population. Oh. I bet you don't know. Everyone knows China, India, and the U.S., but do you know the fourth? I think I know, Ryan, but uh, it's not for me to answer. It's for our listeners to answer. Leave a comment. Uh, we might give you a shout out on our next episode. If you get it right. Just don't Google. Don't cheat. Be honest. Wake up. <laughs> Until next time.